The Blunt Post with Vic. Good morning and welcome to The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jarami, the editor and publisher of The Blunt Post. The Blunt Post with Vic is a program that covers national breaking and headline news, offers analysis and commentary, and I interview members of Congress and other high-profile public figures. Following the news, I am thrilled to announce that both of my special guests today gave me their first exclusive interviews following their extraordinary victories last week. I'm excited for this show because my first guest is the lead federal prosecutor, Chelsea Norell, whose federal case against the notorious Ed Buck got him convicted on all nine charges just this past Tuesday. Uh, next, I interview uh, Alex Mohajer, the new president of the Stonewall Democratic Club, who was elected last Monday by a record number of voters to lead the nation's oldest LGBTQ feminist political advocacy organization. So stay tuned. Here are some headlines. Three Armenian soldiers were killed during the latest attack by Azerbaijan in the sovereign territory of Armenia. This was the latest provocation by Azerbaijan's dictator, President Aliyev, and his terrorist regime, backed by another dictator, Turkey's President Erdogan. From September 27th to November 9th of last year, Azerbaijan orchestrated a genocidal attack on Artsakh, also known as Nagorno-Karabakh, um, that massacred over 4,000 Armenians and occupied 80% of Artsakh, a historic part of Armenia. With the exception of France's President Macron, most of the world has been deafeningly silent on the matter due to their own self-interest. Europe's thirst for Caspian oil and gas, flowing from Azerbaijan via pipelines, weapon sales to Azerbaijan, and geopolitics have played major roles in subjugating the world leaders to turn a blind eye. With the recent increase of COVID-19 infections and hospitalizations due to the spread of highly transmittable Delta variant, health experts and officials expect the surge to worsen as long as large segments of the country remain unvaccinated. As of Friday morning, 49.5% of the U.S. population was fully vaccinated, according to the CDC. This fully vaccinated figure was 57.9% for people eligible for inoculation ages 12 and up. Hospitalizations have also risen. More than 43,700 COVID-19 patients were in the U.S. hospitals on Wednesday, a number that's generally risen since 2021, low of 15,906 on June 27th, according to the Department of Health and Human Services data. California's public health agency last week recommended that people wear masks indoors regardless of their vaccination status, one of several steps taken across the state as part of an urgent effort to curb the rise of coronavirus infections. Meanwhile, counties, cities, school districts, and employers across the state have announced their own measures around masking and vaccinations, sometimes going further than federal and state recommendations. Although case numbers in California remain well below the winter peak, infections and hospitalizations are rising, and health officials fear that not enough people are vaccinated to curb the spread of Delta variant. 
In California, more than 62% of residents 12 and older are fully vaccinated, but vaccination rates vary widely across counties. The Blunt Post with Vic. Assistant United States Attorney Chelsea Norell has been a federal prosecutor in Los Angeles for five years and currently is a member of the U.S. Attorney's Office Violent and Organized Crime Section. She previously served as a prosecutor in the office's International Narcotics, Money Laundering, and Racketeering Section. During her prosecutorial career, she has helped target disrupt international, interstate, and local drug trafficking organizations. Chelsea and a team of prosecutors received the Los Angeles County Bar Association 2019 Prosecutor of the Year Award for their racketeering prosecution of 51 members of the Cantaranas Street Gang, which committed violent crimes and drug trafficking in Santa Fe Springs area. She also has been in front lines of combating the opiate epidemic, securing convictions for traffickers and medical professionals who illegally distribute the dangerous narcotics. On Tuesday of last week, as the lead federal prosecutor on the very high-profile Ed Buck case, she won a guilty verdict on all nine charges, making her one of the most celebrated attorneys in recent history. Good morning, Chelsea. Thank you for being on the Blunt Post uh, with Vic this morning. How are you? Hi, Vic. Good morning. I'm excellent. How are you doing? I am well. I'm very excited and grateful to have this opportunity to speak with you. Um, as um, I've mentioned before, I've been I've been sort of intimately aware and in some ways even involved with developments uh, of, of this case since 2017. Uh, and I know some of the victim's family and such. So, you know, I don't know if it's appropriate for me to say congratulations. Um, if not, the, at least to say um, thank you for taking this landmark case and uh, getting a guilty verdict on all nine counts. Um, justice was served. Um, I know that the families, well, I know that victims won't be brought back. Um, Jamal Moore and Timothy, uh, but uh, Timothy Dean, but at least justice was served. And um, I thank you. And um, if congratulations is, uh, is, is appropriate, then congratulations. Uh, you've definitely sort of allowed some people to sleep a little bit easier uh, going forward. So <laughs> I'm speaking too much. It's been, you know, Tuesday was the verdict. <laughs> And it's been, you know, several days by now. And uh, I just want to just to ask you right now, just reflecting back in the last few days, uh, how do you feel? Thank you so much for that, Vic. I am ecstatic. I'm relieved. And I'm immensely grateful that we were able to put on the case that we did with so much outpouring of support from the community and that the jury saw the facts and the evidence the same way that we did and convicted across the board very swiftly in deliberations that were just under five hours. Yeah, that, that was <laughs> even even I was surprised how fast this happened. So uh, which goes to show about the kind of case, uh, your work, your diligence 
it, it does seem that you you feel as victorious in a in a humbled way as we see you as victorious and we see you as sort of a hero, uh, at least in our perception. Is that how you feel too? I do. It is a victory shared with the victims who entrusted me with these deeply personal and traumatic stories uh, with the families who steadfastly watched the proceedings and kept their faith in us and continue to watch even as the defense tried to slander their loved ones. Um, It's a victory that we share with our law enforcement partners who investigated this case. Um, And it's a victory that I share with my amazing co-counsel, Lindsay Bailey, and the support of so many people at the U.S. Attorney's Office. So, yes, I think I think we all feel quite victorious at this point. I like that. Very, very nice. Um, I want to, uh, well, let's go back to how you came to be on this case. Yeah, so honestly, I, <laughs> when this case came across my desk, I had, no idea that it was going to be uh, the high-profile sort of uh, bellwether that it that it turned out to be. I had never heard of Ed Buck, but my boss at the time, Carol Chen, knew that I was passionate about victim cases, and she uh, this case was pitched to her by the LASD, and she was gearing up for a big trial. So she asked me to evaluate it and see if it was an investigation that we could pursue federally. And were there, like, was there any, how, how fast did you find out about sort of like the significance and how this was going to become this big thing? Yeah, so, I, I mean, I, I looked up at Buck after that and I looked up, um, the, the, the victims and I looked obviously through all of the, investigative materials, the witness statements, everything like that, it it, it quickly became apparent that there was a very deeply disturbing pattern here. Um, And I I thought it was incumbent upon us to fully flesh that out and identify others that seemed to be impacted by this case that would have potentially admissible evidence that we could use it in putting this case together. Right. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, I've, as I said, I've been sort of, uh, you know, following and involved and advocating for this case for such a long time. And I know that uh, those of us who are not in uh, law enforcement or in prosecution, etc., we sort of want things done fast and we want justice done and all of that, especially when there were no, let's just call them glitches at this point prior to you uh, taking on the case. Um, but that's not how it works. And law takes time and it, it takes a lot of diligence to do it right, especially if you want to be victorious the way that you were. Um, how were you able to balance between sort of comforting the, the people who were following and they had such a personal connection to it, but at the same time, not letting it get in the way of you doing your due diligence and therefore not compromising the case. Yeah. So a case crumbles if it doesn't have good bones. And just as a practical matter, my office goes through so many layers of review to ensure that any charging decisions are fully vetted and that we 
firmly believe that we can prove any case we bring beyond a reasonable doubt. So I, I had to trust the public would eventually see the end result and recognize the work that had to go in on the front end and recognize that that work was worth it. Um, as a line prosecutor, my priorities are the safety of the victims and the welfare of the case. So those really had to be my guiding principle as we were facing um, sort of mounting pressure about victims who understandably uh, wanted justice and family members who wanted justice. I, I had to trust that they would eventually be vindicated by the, the results in this case. Yes, and they sure were. were. So um, this is The Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, and you are listening to my interview with U.S. Attorney Chelsea Norell. My next question is, uh, you know, you've just looking at your background, uh, you've done similar cases and you're definitely um, someone that advocates for human rights um, and social justice, etc. Was there anything that was a big surprise when you were looking through this? Any sort of eye opening moments, even for someone like you who's very seasoned? Yeah, there were so many surprises, Dick. Uh, I couldn't possibly have predicted what I learned in the process of this case. Um, The one that resonates with me the most is the precise pattern that so many people described. People who didn't know each other, didn't know um, the scope of the case necessarily, and new details that weren't disclosed in the news. And just repeatedly and eerily described a ritual of going to the defendant's apartment for party and play, the specific garments and masks that defendant had them wear, the preparation of the syringes to inject them, details like the fact that Buck kept drugs in a false bottom flashlight, uh, things that you just wouldn't know if you hadn't been there. And I found myself practically able to finish their sentences by by the end of this investigation because Buck had such a defined routine with his dates. And right. then when we found troves of videos that he kept on his digital devices that just confirmed what these victims were telling me, it was that that was in an even greater shock, um, the volume and the specificity that was confirmed uh, was really eye-opening. Wow. I mean, I know, I know pretty much everything you just said, but just hearing you say it again, uh, I was still a little taken just to hear all of that once again. is just, uh, really unbelievable. You know, there's been, there's been a lot of movement about uh, sort of social justice and, um, ju- you know, criminal justice reform and things like that. And we've had some we've had some good progression and uh, we've had some good outcomes just lately. And certainly this is one that gives a lot of people hope. And I know that this question is not fair to you because it's it's a I don't know if any one person can answer to this. It, it more, you know, probably will take an essay, but. Just from your where you are, should we dare to feel a little bit more comfortable that justice does get served sometimes, even for uh, people of color or people who are queer? 
You know, I don't know if one case can can turn a corner, um, mm-hmm. but I do hope that it was a step in the right direction of earning the public's trust that there are passionate prosecutors out there who believe victims and want to use criminal law to vindicate their rights. What I say and do in a courtroom is not evidence. Only victims can present their accounts, and I'm just there to kind of guide their story but we need a partnership and a mutual trust to be able to bring these tough cases and it's incumbent upon law enforcement and prosecutors to earn that trust because what we ask victims to do when we ask them to come in and bear their souls and be subject to withering cross-examinations, it takes an immense amount of courage. And you cannot ask somebody to do that if they don't have faith that the system is going to work and that it's just and that justice can be served. Absolutely. And I think you um, you answered at least part of the <laughs> Uh, the answer to part of my next question, which was going to be, how do you see the broader impact of this verdict? But I think you um, you covered that with what you just said. Was there anything else you'd like to add to that? Um, with this, yeah, I, I I do. I mean, I hope the broader impact of this case is to show victims that we see you, we hear you, and we believe you. And if this makes one person more likely to call nine one one or to file a police report. Um, when they're drugged or sexually assaulted or victimized in any other way, I think that would honor the lives lost in this case and the victims who bravely came forward in the Buck case. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I thought it was really brave of a lot of, um, a lot of other guys that came forward and said that this had happened to them. Um, and started to put themselves out there because it's not easy, especially with the the judgment and the ridicule that one gets. Uh, I know that some of them were sex workers, and our society tends to, um, uh, you know, demonize and uh, just judge people um, for being, you know, doing survival sex work. So I do I do applaud them for for contributing to this case. Um, and, and I'll tell you, Vic, they they did not do it for themselves. Um, the motivating factor that each of the victims told me uh, that they had in coming forward was doing this for the two men who couldn't testify in the trial, Jamal Moore and Timothy Dean, and for their families and for their memories and to make sure that this didn't happen again. Yeah, absolutely. This is The Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, and you are listening to my interview with U.S. Attorney Chelsea Norell. So this trial is over, uh, but the case is not, and certainly the story is not. Where do you personally go from here, and uh, are you involved in the next uh, whatever steps there are? Yes, I will definitely be involved and see this case through. The next immediate step is defendant made a Rule 29 motion, which is a motion for judgment of acquittal. And this motion is typically made at the end of the government's case and then at the close of all of the evidence. So they will brief that motion and we, the government, will respond to it. There will be a hearing on that motion 
then we will proceed to sentencing, uh, which has not been set yet. And then I expect there will be an appeal. And I and my co-counsel, Lindsay Bailey, will be involved in that, as well as our appellate counsel, Julia Reese. That's interesting to know the you know what comes next. Uh, is there anything that I haven't addressed that you'd like people to know uh, about this particular case? Yeah, I, I would love people to to know the immense coordinated efforts that went into this case. Um, a case of this nature cannot be investigated by just one body. Um, this was really a coordinated effort between the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department as well as FBI and DEA. And we were able to leverage resources at the state and federal level to be able to have such a comprehensive investigation. A case like this uh, it involves resources at, at every level in terms of interviewing witnesses, in terms of the sheer amount of digital device evidence. Uh, we had devices searched at the, in Quantico. Um, we had DEA. Uh, heavily involved in in the review of those devices. We had the human trafficking unit um, offering and providing services to victims. So this was truly a mammoth effort on, on behalf of many, many bodies. So I, I definitely want to take a, a moment to thank our law enforcement partners for that. It does take a a village. And finally, yes. <laughs> for the families of, of Jamel Moore and Timothy Dean and other people who were victimized by um, Ed Buck, do you have any message for them? Yeah, I think what you said at the beginning, Vic, really resonates. Uh, no verdict makes someone whole. And I'm so deeply sorry for the losses of Jamel Moore and Timothy Dean. I, I mourn with you. On, on that and our commitment to the victims in this case extends beyond any verdict and beyond sentencing. And if any of your listeners out there experienced or had a loved one who experienced uh, the trauma of, of Ed Buck, I, I would encourage you to please reach out, reach out to the sheriff's office. We want to hear your story and we want to offer services that may be available to you under the Crime Victims Rights Act. Wow, thank you for that. Thanks for adding that point. And any parting uh, thoughts before we finish? Vic, it has been an immense honor to be entrusted with oh. this case. Um, I am deeply grateful for the support of the community who came out and cheered for us as we fought every day in court. And we fought. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm appreciative of the support of the U.S. Attorney's Office that gave me the bandwidth to commit myself to this case. And even though everyone had to watch this from the overflow room because of COVID, I just want everyone to know we felt your love and your encouragement each and every day, and it really kept us fighting. So thank you very much. Well said. Um, thank you, Chelsea. I, I'm very grateful again, and thank you for... You know, sharing your experience with this, with this very important and landmark case, uh, more than a case, um, a story of people victimized and families uh, torn apart. And uh, at least there is some relief. And thanks to you. Very grateful for that. So thank you. 
Thank you for the opportunity, Vic. That was my interview with uh, U.S. Attorney Chelsea Norell, uh, who won a conviction uh, on all nine charges against uh, Ed Buck, um, who committed heinous crimes, uh, and it, uh, it was a four-year of torture for the victims, their families, and friends. Uh, I have been very familiar with the case and following it, and I know some of the people involved. Uh, so this was a this was a huge, huge victory for um, so many people, and I'm just really humbled and uh, just very thankful for having this interview and chatting with Chelsea. Uh, so thank you, thank you, thank you for taking the time to speak with me. Much, much appreciated. The Blunt Post with Vic. Alex Mohajer is an award-winning independent political writer and commentator, advocate, and organizer. A week ago, Alex became the first millennial and first Iranian-American elected president of the Stonewall Democratic Club, the nation's oldest LGBTQ feminist political advocacy organization. He previously served as the public and media relations chairman, where his organizing efforts around the 2020 U.S. presidential election earned a Truman Award. As a journalist, Mahajer has written for USA Today, HuffPost, and Medium, and in 2018, his criticism of the Trump administration won the 2018 Excellence in Journalism Award for excellence in featured writing from the National Association of LGBTQ Journalists. Good morning, Alex. Thank you for being on The Blunt Post with Vic this morning. How are you? Good morning, Vic. Pleasure to be here. and. Uh... Happy to speak with you. Doing well. How about you? Uh, all is well. I'm excited to to chat with you and about uh, the Stonewall Democratic Club and uh, all related matters. So first, I want to congratulate you on on being the first millennial and the first Iranian American president of the Stonewall Democratic Club, which is the nation's oldest LGBTQ feminist political advocacy organization. Thank you so much. Of Thank course. you. What does what does this mean to you? This sort of this new win, this new position, all of that. What does it mean to me? I mean, you know, when I first was thinking about running, um, it was probably December of last year, and I was told in no uncertain terms, "You'll never win. Um, that uh, you'll never unseat an incumbent." and that uh, the, the elected officials would rally around the incumbent and that I didn't really have a chance. So I was, I mean, I was told not to run for that reason. And I think what this message sends uh, to LA County democratic politics is that there are uh, progressive voices, grassroots voices and community uh, voices that are willing to unite and rally around a message and not politics as usual. And um, my campaign was never about camp, you know, collecting endorsements. It was about going to my community one by one by one by one and talking to them about the need for change, about the need to disrupt uh, power structures that are sort of institutions in favor of uh, values and community. And so I think it's uh, that's what it really means to me. It's the power of our community, it's the power of teamwork and collaboration, because a lot of people worked on this with me for many, many months, and 
we we did it with our hands tied behind our back um, in a lot of ways. So it was really it was really um, powerful. It was a really powerful night Monday uh, to sort of reclaim Stonewall's independence yeah. and uh, and do it as a team. It wasn't really a me. Uh, effort. It was a we effort. And I think that that is the way I want to lead the organization too. Yeah, well, definitely congrats on that. It's remarkable that an organization that was birthed out of um, an oppressed community's uh, need uh, can then turn around and become the establishment. Uh, I think it's also, it's astounding that after, you know, witnessing so many people um, do the what others thought was impossible Uh, for example President Obama becoming um, our first black president and there's so many other examples that there are some that still hold on to that old narrative that oh you can't do this or you can't do that or don't even think about that Um, some an unrelated example that I can think about was or is actually a, a theater critic's criticism of uh, Lord Laurence Olivier when he was young and this critic and I'm paraphrasing said something like he has no place to be on the stage (laughs) and of course uh, Laurence Olivier is regarded as probably the best or or the greatest actor of the 20th century so uh, it's interesting that people still will tell you things like that and you certainly prove them wrong and uh, it has been two well it's been a week exactly a week since uh, the election you know where a record number of people attended the election and put their trust in you uh, to lead the Stonewall Democratic Club how do you reflect on I think you kind of answered it but uh, I'll ask it again how do you reflect on on this dishonor well I mean, firstly, I mean, it was by by any stretch of the imagination, it was an upset. And despite I I knew that we were going into Monday night having um, whipped a very strong amount of votes. And even that being said, you know, we were going up against the institution and there were um, a lot of people that were there to come in and protect uh, what they felt is the institution and i was aware of that i i was known under no illusions that this is going to be easy so it was definitely we we only won by six votes so one of the things that i reflect on on this is you know always remember the power of your vote in any institution organization election or party uh politics uh, that the power of civic engagement you know I, I first really started talking about that in 2016 after Hillary Clinton's loss. People didn't really realize that Hillary Clinton lost that uh, election in 2016 with the popular vote. She won the popular vote, lost the Electoral College with 77,000 votes in three states, which is less right. than a fraction of a single percentage point. And um, that comes down to one or two votes per district. That would have changed the outcome of that election. and. That's on the grand scale and here on this much more microcosmic level, it's like, um, you know, six votes. Yeah, that's it. Had six, six people decided they couldn't make it. They were a little too busy. They didn't want to attend. We would we would be having a different uh, conversation today. So I think that's the takeaway, too, is is we have we have the power 
to make change even at the microcosmic uh, molecular level you know we we can make changes we can do these things we just have to remember the power of our of our voice and participate and i'm a big believer that we don't we shouldn't tear down our systems or institutions uh my my race was always meant to be disruptive but not i didn't i wasn't coming in to 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 torch the place right it was about reforming systems from inside and i saw lots of ways uh over the years where i felt like stonewall could be doing more to live up to its namesake <laughs> you were talking about you know it, it was born from a movement you're, you're actually you're absolutely right stonewall was a riot in response to an oppressive surveillance police state that brutalized our people and you know now this organization is a is a democratic party uh, electoral politics institution and and it, it will always be that you know i understand that it will always be that but i thought we could really benefit from remembering where we came from and getting back to our roots in terms of applying that same sort of uh, act the spirit of activism and dissent uh into uh the way that we operate and to remember the people that fronted that movement which were people of color and trans people who both those communities are under unprecedented attack today um and yep. that we need to remember that moving forward so those are kind of the ruminations on what the win means and and really part of why i ran to begin with well well said i think uh uh, I think a lot of people uh, share your enthusiasm. I know a lot of people share your enthusiasm. Uh, before we go any further, I just, uh, for those of us, or those of you who are just joining us, uh, this is the Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. Uh, I am your host, Vic Jarami, and you are listening to my interview with Alex Mohajer, who is the new president of the Stonewall Democratic Club. So Alex, as you know, President Trump, uh, you know, his whole administration was such a big setback for everyone. I think that the country, the, the world, and definitely for the LGBTQ community, he really chipped away at a lot of progress that was made with the help and during President Obama's administration. Uh, President Biden is definitely on his way to reverse those setbacks. For you, what are some of the pertinent issues that you think we should we should be addressing at this uh, moment concurrently with the new administration uh, in D.C. and a new administration with uh, Stonewall Democratic Club? I think uh, Democrats and concerned activists, concerned citizens, really any any sort of concerned citizen should be deeply, deeply alarmed by Republican attempts to circumvent the will of the majority and democracy uh, and and to try to take power through procedural and legislative means which is happening all over the country including right here in california where the republicans are trying to recall uh the, the governor on on the 14th of september um and on the national level with um uh, sorry on, on in, in states like georgia uh arizona there, there are hundreds of anti-voting rights bills that have been passed by GOP-controlled state legislatures across the country 
in response to Joe Biden's victory in November um, because they lost their power and now they're lashing out and they're using this big lie about the election being stolen as justification for implementing these restrictive voting rights laws, which to be clear, target people of color and make it harder for people to vote. So whether it's the recall here, whether it's the anti-voting rights legislation uh, that's being passed across the country, Americans should be alarmed by this uh, power grab. And it's not new for the GOP. Um, they've tried all kinds of voter suppression tactics for decades, but particularly the last few years, they uh, Republicans, secretaries of state participated in 2016, 2018 in a uh, in purging voter rolls using an interstate voter cross check system uh, and in in uh, incorrectly purged eligible voters from those rolls, um, redistricting using gerrymandering to to uh, consolidate power. Uh, it's all deeply troubling and anti-democratic. And to me, that's at the forefront of my mind. So here at Stonewall, I'll be paying very close attention and trying to rally the troops uh, to fight the recall, to vote no on this recall effort on the 14th, and to respect the, the will of the, the electorate. Um, the Republicans need to respect uh, the, the democratic process, and um, we, should be, we should be concerned about that and, and really speaking up and fighting about it. Yeah, absolutely. And aside from this absurd recall of Governor Newsom, uh, now the Republicans are going after um, our very progressive L.A. District Attorney, uh, George Gascon. Uh, and I think a, a big part of that is that uh, in California, Republicans have a really hard time getting elected. So the only way they can sort of take a seat is by recalling and sort of bullying themselves in there. And it's sad, and I hope that the recall doesn't happen with uh, with uh, District Attorney George Gascon because he's he's truly doing some great things and really reforming. And uh, uh, we'll see what happens. But uh, thank you for that. Um, as far as um, as far as a long term hope, what do you hope to achieve, like during your tenure at the Stonewall Democratic Club? What would that look like toward the end? Well, the long-term goal is to start putting the institutional groundwork in place right now that allows us to expand our reach all over Los Angeles County and that diversifies our membership and leadership to be uh, a real reflection of the LGBTQ community at large. So right now we have a little bit of a reputation of being a West Hollywood um, gay men's club, but really we're chartered all over Los Angeles County and we're an LGBTQ and feminist organization. So um, I, I'd really like us to um, build community-based coalitions out in the community that have uh, reach that have a reach out into the San Gabriel Valley and Pasadena and Compton and Long Beach and uh, the Antelope Valley. And that brings in more trans people, more people of color. And frankly, I would like when it's turned for me to time for me to hand the baton over to the next uh, leader of the organization, that it be a, a woman of color. I think that would be profoundly uh, powerful and, and something that's long overdue and um, is a part of 
my long-term vision here in terms of succession planning and and uh, what we can develop here culturally at our club. And all that's going to be work. And it's going to, you know, I don't, I don't think I'm a magic bullet. I think it's going to need uh, concerted team effort. And that's my hope for what I hope to leave behind when I yeah. go is much more of a rainbow coalition than when we started. Yeah. I like that. And, uh, when you said, you know, it's going to take work, it makes me think not just work by you or the board of Stonewall democratic club, but by all of us, um, you know, it reminds me of this, uh, I don't know if it's a saying or a quote that, uh, if you don't like to do politics, politics will do you, I'm probably paraphrasing, but, uh, yeah, everyone should, I mean, everyone who wants to see change, uh, you know, you've, you're a part of that and you've got to work at it and support the people who are leading it because your, your position is you're non-paid, you're a volunteer essentially, correct? Yeah. So you're doing true. this because you believe in it and, uh, you know, but, uh, it's up to all of us to support you and do the work with you. Um, having said that, um, as the leader of the Stonewall Democratic Club, what message would you have for non-LGBTQ people uh, as well as the queer community? The message I have for the queer community is that, you know, we are not a monolith. I understand that. I understand that there are very, the, the, the intersectionality of our, of our um, community um, means that we cross a broad range of ideologies, of uh, perspectives, and that we don't always see eye to eye. But I believe that it is possible for us to unite around our shared goals and our shared vision for what we want, not only the Democratic Party to be, but what we want the country to be. And that if we can unite around our shared goals, that we can become the most powerful you know, we can become a powerful voting block that decides elections, particularly here in LA County. Stonewall is already deeply influential, um, but we can we can be a value-based uh, movement that makes or breaks uh, candidacies uh, and and pushes forward our uh, our shared goals. Uh, to the larger, broader discourse. And we can do that by uniting around our shared goals. Let's come together. Let's respect the fact that there's uh, a, a broad range of ideologies here, but that we share certain values of equity, civil rights, uh, and uh, let's, let's unite and work with me. Come join our movement. We welcome allies into our organization. We welcome, um, we welcome uh, feminists, women, uh, and all LGBTQ people come join us if you believe in these values and let's work together to accomplish them. Wow. Thank you for that. It's definitely, <laughs> definitely a, a great message for uh, anyone listening. Just before we go, uh, would you like to add anything, uh, perhaps even a, a call to action? Yeah, I, I actually just want to thank all the people that, um, supported this effort it was a total team effort you know i i collected three endorsements during my my race uh there were only three public officials who were who were willing to put their neck out 
for a challenger in an election. Uh, and that was West Hollywood City Council member Seppi Shine and, and council members D'Amico and Meister. You know, I want to thank them and I want to thank the team. It was a team effort that put it together, that organized and made calls and texted and spreadsheets and whip counts and canvassing um, uh, phone numbers for me and um, and connecting me to potential voters. It was such a team effort. So many people put in so many, so many hours and their, their sweat and their tears. And so I just want to thank them. And, you know, my message for you, if you're listening, stonewalldems.org, come join us. We would love to have you. Um, if you feel like you don't, you don't have a home uh, to have your political voice heard and you'd like a home, come join us. Come, uh, Come be a part of the uh, the movement, and we have your backs. That's great. So that's stonewalldams.org. Uh, Alex, yep. thank you. Congratulations again. Um, I'm sure we'll chat again soon. Good luck to you, although I don't think you need it. And uh, <laughs> appreciate you being on the show today. Thank you, Vic. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. That was my interview with uh, Alex Mohajer, the new president of the Stonewall Democratic Club. Uh, a big, huge win and congratulations. A record number of people voted and uh, uh, decided that Alex should lead the organization uh, going forward. And uh, I know that he has a lot of great things planned and I'm grateful for this interview. Alex, uh, thank you very much for your time. So I'm back, uh, and this time I've brought my very talented and um, I think underappreciated producer, Ricky Herrera, who, with whom uh, I worked for for the last two years, um, and he is absolutely indispensable. This show could not happen without him. Very glad to have Ricky with me so we can talk a little bit more about the pledge drive. So, um, Ricky, you've done this many times. You too know, obviously, the importance of this station, its legacy, and it, what it means to the community and our listeners. Why don't you just, uh, why don't you start? Yeah, Vic, and that's exactly what this station is. It's Before we go, I want to thank my extremely talented producer, Ricky Herrera. And uh, of course, thank you for joining me for another episode of The Blunt Post with Vic. Please tune in next Monday at 7 a.m. for another episode. For more information, you can visit thebluntpostwithvic.com. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Vic Jaramie. Uh, both Instagram and Twitter. My handle is at Vic Jaramie. That's V-I-C-G-E-R-A-M-I. The Blunt Post with Vic.